All right, Romans chapter 1, if you want to open up there, Romans chapter 1. Uh, if you are brand new with us, you've not been in a Sunday night just yet, uh, we, we can give you some handouts here. Uh, the first one is going to be from the first week. So this is an introduction to the book of Romans. Uh, so if you've not been with us at all, you need one of these. And if you were not here last week, we have the handout for you as well. So right now, if you've been part of the study, you should have one that in the first page it says Romans 1, 1 through 7. And the next one should say Romans 1, 8 through 17. So if you do not have one of these, let me ask it this way. How many of you need the first one? First brand new one. Okay, I was kind of worried about that. Let me see how many I have first. We might be okay. I might have enough. Can you just pass one down to Bernie there? Absolutely. Who else needs one? Okay, you guys need one. Okay, can you make a copy for me, Kelsey? That would be great. Uh, who else needs a first week? One, two, three. So three of those. There's that. No, no, no. They're getting in and out of there right now. All right, who needs last week's study? I have more of those, I think. Yes, I do. So we're good on that one. I think I got enough. I'm good. Yeah. Yep, I'm good. I've got plenty. There you go. We love paperwork. Love paperwork. That's right. Okay. Who are you giving it? Oh, that one down there. Okay, there you go. Yep. There you go. Okay. Okay. Who else needs one? Over here. Okay, Zach. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I always make couples share. <laughs> Look at that. And then Kelsey needed one, right? Last one. Thing of beauty. Look at that. Yeah, when she comes back, I'll be like, actually, can you make me a copy? All right. So those of you that are brand new, what we're doing is, if you've not been in the session yet on Sunday nights, um, we're, you're not missing much. We literally met, I think, three weeks, maybe, because um, we had a bonfire and some other things going on. So um, we just started this in the beginning of September. And what we're doing is we're walking through the book of Romans kind of verse by verse, passage by passage, and we're just going to kind of see how far we go. Um, and so uh, the handout you just got, the two handouts, uh, we did this when we walked through the Gospel of Luke. I had a lot of people ask for like notes and stuff, and I thought, well, we could do fill in the blanks, but then you're missing blanks if you're not here, and it gets to be a headache. So what we're doing is I'm giving you like a basic outline of the sections each chapter. So you have chapter one in its entirety with those two handouts. If we finish chapter one today, next week I'll have chapter two, and so you'll always get one handout per chapter, okay? I encourage you, keep them at home, put them in a folder, uh, keep them on hand so you can go back later and study this out for yourself, okay? So uh, the stuff in the outline isn't going to be, I mean, super, super profound at some points, but it's just information so you have what we're talking about here. If you're like me and you're a note taker, uh, this way you'll have an advancement. Plus, if you miss a week, you're still going to have the material, okay? So you can always kind of keep it that way. One thing we're doing too this week, actually, Kels, can you make a couple copies of this one? I'm just kidding. We had enough. You're fine. That's fine. That's all good. Thank you, ma'am. 
Thank you, Kelsey. Let's try that again. Thank you, Kelsey. There you go. Okay. I knew you guys could do it. Did you not grab one for yourself? I left one on your seat from... Oh, you... Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Okay. 621. We'll get done. Okay. So... Yeah, right. Not for us. Okay. So, all right. So, uh, like I was saying, so the first handout you got... Uh, the one through seven, that is literally an introduction of all of the, the book of Romans. Um, there's going to be all kinds of important information in there that uh, we'll need to have. Uh, author, dates, audience. Okay, those are three very important questions when you're studying a Bible book. Uh, you want to know who wrote the book, who are they writing it to, and when did they write it. Uh, also, there's theme. Uh, if you notice in there, we talked about the theme, the key text. Okay, so if there's a verse in a Bible book, that kind of defines the book, okay? Now, not every Bible book has a key text, but usually in a Bible book, you're going to find there's some kind of a hinge to the whole thing. It's a couple verses, maybe one or two or three verses that will kind of explain the book. Sometimes the book will tell us what that verse is, uh, meaning in the, the book of Jude, for example. He says, I want to talk about this, our common salvation, but I'm going to talk about this. And he starts talking about the false teachers. So you can kind of figure out from that what the whole book is about. So knowing that key text will help you have an overall idea. And that's important because what do we need to do with the book of Romans? We, we study it, we learn it, then we interpret it, right? We basically say, what is it saying? Okay, what is it saying to me? What is it saying to my life? Because then what do I want to do? Once I know what it's saying, what's the next step that I need to do? Application. I figure out what's being said. Then I need to figure out how do I go live this out? Or what, what do I do in response to this? Okay? Paul says pray without ceasing. What's the interpretation of that? Pray without ceasing. How would you interpret that? Always be in prayer. Continuous prayer. That's a pretty easy one, right? How do I apply that? Pray. Okay, yeah. Very easy, right? But so often, what's the biggest challenge in those steps? Application, right? We can figure out what a passage is saying pretty quickly. It's when we want to live it out. Um, and so we talked about that, the key text. We talked about characteristics of the book of Romans. <coughs> we talked about uh, what makes the book of Romans unique, okay? Uh, as far as even Paul's writings, uh, does anyone know how many epistles, books, letters, whatever you want to call them, that Paul wrote in the New Testament? Got to take a guess. Thirteen. Thirteen, okay? So he writes a lot, right? There's a lot of the New Testament that's in there. What does that tell us then? Every book is going to be a little bit different. But what do we know about all of his writings? They're written by him, therefore there's going to be a lot of similarities. When I say characteristics of the book of Romans, it's saying what is unique to the book of Romans. And if you look at it there, just as a review, uh, it's the most systematic of Paul's letters. Okay, It reads and carries like a detailed theological essay, much more than it does a letter. If you receive, just imagine for a moment, you received a letter from someone you trusted. And it was written like the book of Romans is written. And just page after page after page. You would just be like enamored with this thing. And so when you think about this, this was a letter written to a church. And odds are when they got this, they stood up and just read through Paul's letter. 
Could you imagine being the first audience to hear the book of Romans as a letter? And you'd be overwhelmed. It would be amazing. Okay? Also, I, I imagine for a moment a church service where you showed up and I just said, okay, let's start. And I just started reading the book of Romans. And j- not, no commentary, no illustrations, no videos. I just started reading. Okay? In our church culture today, what would happen in most cases? Right? Sooner or later. Now, we're blessed. That doesn't happen in our church. Okay? No one ever falls asleep in our church. It doesn't happen. I don't know why it doesn't happen. It just doesn't. I've never looked out and seen anyone sleeping ever. Okay? I'm obviously lying. So God forgive me for that. Okay? But this is a really cool point that I was thinking on this week. Because when you think about church history, Jonathan Edwards is known as what's called a revivalist preacher. And he was huge in preaching unto repentance. People, I mean, hundreds of people would get saved under his preaching. Just an amazing man of God used by God. But do you know what church history says he would do when he would preach? He literally would get up and just read his sermon. How many of you guys have read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Many of you read this in school, maybe? Only a couple. Oh, okay. I encourage you, read it. Uh, If you're not saved, you'll be saved by the end of it, I promise you. Um... It's actually, when I was in uh, a senior in high school in literature, we read, uh, maybe I was a junior, we read in a secular school, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's a sermon by Jonathan Edwards. Um, He was, I'm pretty sure, and I'm trying to double check this as I'm talking, I'm pretty sure he was Puritan. Um, And so some of the content is very, it sounds very harsh. But remember, when he was preaching this, he was preaching it so that people would receive Christ. But there's some lines in there. There's some things in there that it's like, why would you ever say that to me? That's so hard. That's so hard to hear. But you know what's crazy is people get saved from his messages, and he didn't illustrate. He didn't give great commentary. He literally just got up and read and just read and read and read. And so I think about that when this first church, when the, when the Roman church first, that first group, and they got up and said, we're going to read Paul's letter to us and just starts reading through it verse by verse. It's such a cool thing to think about. Okay. Uh, so that's the introduction. You guys talk, talked about that. I encourage you to read through that. The next one you guys got uh, was, let's see, what was it? Verses, where do we cover? 8 through 17, it says at the beginning there. Uh, we really covered just kind of an introduction to Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, we talked about the fact that he prayed for them. And so on the very first page of the second handout, you're going to see this. Uh, Romans 1, 8 through 17. It talks about that Paul prayed for them, uh, all the different things he prayed for them, why he would be praying these things. Um, We talked about it last week. When you read about the prayers of Paul for the Roman church, I asked the question, is this common or uncommon for the Apostle Paul to share that he's praying for a church? And the answer is, it's common for him to do this, right? Because he does this often. Uh, I believe it's Ephesians and Philippians where he talks about, this is what I'm praying for you. And I said last week, what does this tell us about the Apostle Paul? What does this make us realize about him and his character? And people gave some great opinions, great ideas. But there was one underlining thing that it took a little while to get to because I think it was just the obvious answer. What does this tell us about the Apostle Paul and his character as far as connected to the church? He prayed for the church. And what is that an encouragement to us to realize? We need to be praying for the church. We need to be praying for God to bless the church and to work in and through the church. And so we went through that last week. 
Um, we also covered his uh, passion, his desire. Um, we shared that in uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 14, we talked about the idea of a debtor. What does Paul mean by that? We said that Paul believes that he owes a great obligation to those that are wise and unwise. Uh, all of the people groups all over the world, he owes them an obligation to share the gospel with them because he has received the gospel himself and he realizes what it can do and what it is. And so he's committed and passionate about sharing it with everyone. Okay, and we read that in Romans 1, really verses 14, 15, 16, and 17, we see that. Okay, so Paul's passion is to share Christ. Paul's desire is that other people will come to know Christ. And he's writing this letter to them, and he's going to start explaining how that or why that is needed. He just got done t- saying Gentiles, barbarians, Greeks, Jews, all of the world needs the gospel. Wise, unwise, educated, uneducated, they all need the gospel. Then he gets into saying why that's the case. Okay, uh, So we read verse 18 last week. So let's go ahead and look at it again, and then I'll give a couple comments Then we'll jump in verse 19 as we get into the new stuff. So, Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And I I mentioned last week, what what is the word there? There's a word there, rather, and it's even in your notes, that we would not start with if we were going to share the gospel with somebody. And what word did I say that was? Or what does it say in your notes? Wrath. Paul's opening up as to why the whole world needs Christ. And he starts with the word wrath. And I said it last week. What would we start with? Love. We would instantly go to the love of Christ for the world. Now, let's back it up. Does God love the world? Yes or no? What's the evidence of God's love for the world? Sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. Okay? Pretty simple. Why did Jesus have to come and die on the cross for our sins? I'm sorry? Okay? To pay the atonement. What did we need need atoned? Our sins. Why is sin, why does sin rather need to be atoned? Okay, it separates us from God? Absolutely. I'm sorry? Okay, so it can unite us with him for eternity? Absolutely. When that sin's removed, we can be united with him? Mike? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. If we are, if our sins aren't forgiven and atoned, then our sins have to be paid for. And that means God's wrath is on us. And God's wrath is such that the Bible is very clear. Our sins will be paid for either through Christ or through an eternity in hell. And right when we get to that point, people will say, but that's not fair. That doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound very loving. Okay, but God's wrath is on us, and we all just said it's justified because we're all needing the atonement. So that's Paul's reasoning for opening up with this. He's starting off with, listen, we all are under wrath. We've all rightly and justly received the wrath of God. However, he loved us so much that he sent his son. So we can, we'll get to that. But like I said last week, we jumped to that. We don't start with, we need his forgiveness because we're under the wrath of God. We go right to, you need Jesus because he loves you. And I said it last week, telling somebody Jesus loves them, if they don't understand why that matters, it doesn't mean a lot. God loves you. Great. So does my mom. So does my dad. So does my kids. So does my dog. Like, it doesn't mean anything to me. That's great. I'm glad God loves me. 
And this is why if we start there and we make the love of God all about just God loves you, God loves you, God loves you, the minute God does something that we do not see as loving in our lives, we doubt his love because we're basing it on our idea of love. But if we explain to people, listen, you're sick. You have a disease and that disease is terminal. It's going to take your life and it's going to take your eternal life. And in fact, if you do not believe, you're dead already. We convince people of the disease and the severity of the disease and the weight of the disease, and then we introduce the cure, which is Jesus Christ. And now I receive Christ not just because he loves me, but because I need him. He's my only option. He's my only choice. And I'm so thankful for the love of God that he loved me even in my sin. And I think so often we dwell so much on the love of God, which I'm, I, I, I say that, and I, I know that sounds harsh, but, but man, we need to put it in perspective and understand the love of God is magnified when I realize my sin. When I realize how sinful I really am, and then that God loves me, that only magnifies and promotes the love of God as it does with his grace. And so that's why Paul is starting here. Uh, verse 19 and 20. So we're going to jump into the new stuff. This is new to this week. So can I get a volunteer? One thing we do on Sunday nights sometimes, we'll never make you call out on you unless you're Greg. Um, I'll never call on you to read, okay? Um, he just gave me the raised eyebrow back there. It's true. He's like the only one I'll call on. Maybe, let me look around here. Maybe Matt, uh, Jeff. Yeah, probably Jeff. I'll call on Jeff. Okay, so there's a couple I'll call on. Everyone else, you have to let me know you want to read. I won't call on you. Uh, if you're not comfortable reading out loud, please do not feel weird about that. Just don't raise your hand. You're totally fine, okay? Uh, but I'd love, to, I'd love to get people involved in the study. And so is there anyone that would like to read verses 19 and 20 as we kind of jump into this next section? 19 and 20. Anne, thank you very much. Okay, so the first group that Paul's going to begin to try to teach or share that we need Christ is the Gentiles. Okay, and this is in your notes. Uh, why are the Gentiles guilty before God? And so the first thing we have to realize is they have enough evidence to believe. They're guilty before God because they have enough evidence to believe and choose not to. Okay, that's kind of Paul's point here. They have enough evidence to believe but choose not to. So in verses 19 to 20, we read some of the most popular verses in the book of Romans. It's two verses that really speak to the reality of what God has shown us apart from even Jesus Christ and the word of God. Uh, this right here in verses 19 and 20, this is a combination of natural revelation as well as our God-given conscience within. Okay? We have within us, that is what Paul means by in them. So Paul's kind of saying, you really have no excuse because you have two things working against you here. Meaning, if you choose to reject God, you have two things that are speaking against you. One is natural revelation. And what do I mean by natural revelation? What is Paul saying? What does he mean by, when I say natural revelation, what's he talking about? What do, what do we call natural revelation? What is that? Okay, creation. Okay, so I should be able to look around at creation, which includes not just nature, but what else? 
us, right? I can look at each other. I can look at myself. I can look at trees and animals and seasons and all that I see. And I can come to the conclusion that there's something out there. There's a God. There's something that made this, okay? That's what Paul's point is. Then he says, within us, there's evidence of God. And that's that conscience that we have. Now, what's the problem with our conscience in us? Okay, it's unreliable. Why is our conscience unreliable? Because of what reason? Sin, right? So we have this sin nature that's pulling us away, but have you ever, even before you were a Christian, you didn't know Christ, but you were going to do something wrong you shouldn't do, and your conscience spoke against it? Now, you may have went against your conscience and done it anyway, right? But, I mean, before I was a Christian, I didn't know Jesus Christ as my Savior. I didn't know the Bible. But I knew in me that I should not do this. I I didn't have to even be taught that. I knew that was wrong. If you go anywhere in the world today, even in remote people groups, and I've shared this before when we had experience to talk with the, the New Tribes missionaries, which are now Ethnos 360, every tribe they've ever discovered since their founding. I mean, people groups that seemingly would tell you, and in their own words said, we've never known any other people but our own. In fact, they came across a lot of tribes where if they saw another person from another tribe, they would think it was a demon because they thought they were the only people ever. They were the only ones because they only ever seen themselves because they live in these remote, dense areas of the jungle. And they would see other people and they'd go, oh, that's a demon. We can't go over there. They didn't think it was another people group. But what's interesting, in all these tribes, there was these common things they found in every tribe. In every tribe, murder was murder. Now, they may have done it, but they would tell you, that's wrong. We shouldn't do that. Adultery, get this one. Adultery in almost every tribe was understood as wrong. They did it, but they still knew it was wrong. How in the world is that possible if evolution is true? How in the world is it possible for someone to come up on their own way with sin, right? And they will tell you, we shouldn't do this. We do it, but we shouldn't do it. It's amazing to me when you see these things. That's what Paul's saying. Listen, in you, and yes, sin is there, and it's unreliable, but God has given you something. He's gifted you with this conscience that will be evidence of God, of a creator. And what does he say is evident about God in these areas of natural revelation and uh, our inward conscience, or within us. What does he say are the two things that we can see in verse 20? He says, you can see, you know these two things about God. Okay, his eternal power, and what else? His Godhead. You can come to a conclusion on this. You can understand this about your God. Now, does it say, you'll also understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and you need to receive him or you're going to hell? No. Do you need a handout? I thought you were here last week, man. I'm sorry. Oh, that's the wrong one. Oh, now I do. That's not the one. I don't have one for tonight, actually. I gave them all away. So, yeah. Um, see? No, Kelsey, stay. You're fine. I'll... He's got the first weeks. The first weeks. It's... No, it's... Well, you sure you want to go all the way down there for that? Okay. All right. See, I thought I was good, man. I thought I was good. I went on to one, yeah. All right. So when you see this here, this is the idea that it's limited in the sense of what? It doesn't give us the full scope, okay? 
We can't, we don't derive from natural revelation, Jesus Christ being the atonement for sins. That's why we're accountable to God. But I also believe this is where the Holy Spirit works through the church to say, now let's, let's deliver this message. This is why Jesus said so adamantly, preach the gospel to all nations, preach to every creature. And so that's why, because natural revelation is not limited because God is imperfect, but he has given us not just natural revelation, but special revelation. And when Jesus Christ stepped on the scene, we saw God, the Father, as we've never seen him before. When the word of God was given to us, we were given things that others in the past did not have, right? We've seen the promise fulfilled and those in the Old Testament, they longed to see it. But here's the thing, their faith in the Old Testament and our faith today is still faith, okay? The objects may have changed, meaning they're looking towards the Messiah, right? Putting their faith and trust in what's to come, believing God at his word and following God and obeying God. We put our faith in the Christ who came. We look back to the cross. And what are we doing? We're submitting and following in faith and, and saying, okay, we believe if I put my faith and trust in Christ, this will save me. And we're living in obedience. And so Paul is setting up a case where these Gentiles, these non-Jews, they're guilty before God. And they can't say, but we didn't have the law. That's, I think that's kind of where Paul's going here. We don't have the law. We're not accountable to God. No, no, no. You have all you need to know there is a God and that he is God, that he is eternally powerful. Um, I like what one commentator said, and I think I might have put this in your notes. Uh, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Is that in your notes? Okay. Uh, they say it, like, say it as, the outward creation is not the parent, but the interpreter of our faith in God. And thus the inner and the outer revelation of God, the complement, uh, yeah, the, the, the complement of each other, making up between them one universal and immovable conviction that God is. So these two things work in agreement with one another to give us this understanding. And I love what he says here, the making up between them one universal and immovable conviction that God is. So I am without excuse. Paul goes on to say in the next section here, uh, he continues down this road of dealing with the Gentiles. Uh, they use that knowledge that there is a God or that God exists, that there's something out there. They use that knowledge and worshiped the creation rather than the creator. Okay, so verses 21 through 23. Can I get a volunteer to read those couple of verses? 21 through 23. Adam, thank you very much. So 23, yes. <laughs> okay, real quick, it's not in your notes, but what is 23 a violation of? Not just the first one. They worshiped a different God and then they made images of that God. They made graven images of these things. And so without even really being fully aware, what are they already violating? The law of God. Okay, so this is why we say, well, yeah, but they're innocent. No, they're not innocent. They're violating the law of God, and it's just part of them. That's just, I just was thinking that as we read through there. But look what it says in your notes here. Uh, Paul is speaking to the Gentiles here in Rome, as well as to the greater Greek history of philosophy and wisdom they seem to possess. 
Okay, so he's not just speaking when he talks about they made themselves fools, they did this, they did that. He's not just speaking to the Gentiles in Rome or the surrounding areas. He's saying this is a part of the world problem. There's this idea that in Grecian culture that we're wise, right? Remember, what does he describe it as? There's the wise and the unwise. To the Gentiles he's writing to, if you're of Grecian descent or you think you're part of this philosophy-type movement, you're the wise ones. And he's kind of now unpacking that a little bit here. Uh, Paul sums up their wisdom and superstition, this Greek world uh, culture, uh, the wisdom and superstition with the statement in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, uh, while on Mars Hill in Athens, quote, the times of this ignorance. The times of this ignorance. They thought they were so wise, and yet truly they were fools by rejecting the truth of God in and around them. Right? They thought, oh, we're so wise. We have so much wisdom. But yet by denying the God before them and the God that is revealing himself in them, they actually became fools. Uh, I put in your notes here as well. At least I think it's in your notes. Uh, check out 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through uh, 31. Uh, that should be in your notes. Uh, that's a reference to, again, this idea of what we're seeing in the world at the time. Um, and again, this idea that they think they're so wise. They think they're so smart, right? But the truth is they're rejecting God. They're not acknowledging God as who he is. And in so doing, they become fools. This should not be that surprising to us, should it? You know what today people think? If you believe in God, maybe not to the fullest, but if you believe in creation, you believe in the Bible, you're a fool, right? You're simple. You're backwoods. You're uneducated. You just don't know. That's what it is. You just don't get it. You don't understand the complexities of the scientific processes. I look at it differently. And I think when I trust God at his word, it's the wisest I can live and be. When I look into the word of God and I read about the things God says, I'm foolish enough to believe God did what God said he did. And you might say, well, what about this and this and this? Look, I believe personally in science, archaeology, history. I think we see much more evidence for God's creating everything than we do any kind of evolution. So I believe science actually backs the Bible across the board. However, I don't need science. We shouldn't need science to back up what God says. Because again, my faith is not in the word of a scientist, right? My faith is in the word of God. And so when they say, hey, you're a fool for believing that Jesus Christ did that. Okay. Then as Paul says, in my foolishness, in my weakness then, in your eyes, then I'll be made strong. And so we have to be careful here that we, not, we don't try so hard. And there's Christians throughout the centuries that have done this. They've tried to walk that middle line. They have tried to take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and try to mirror it with this and say, okay, well, we'll, we'll give a little on this and we'll take a little bit of this. Uh, just this idea of trying to compromise these things. I'm all for compromise, but if God's word says this is what it is, then I believe God's word. And so Paul here is saying, listen, these philosophers of the day, not that there's anything intrinsically evil with philosophy, obviously. I'm saying in this culture, when they made themselves the God or they worshiped whatever idols they could come up with, Paul says they actually became fools. Uh, this false wisdom led them into idolatry, not merely of creating animal idols, but ultimately of making themselves the idol. And that's really the problem, right? It's not so much they made a goat and worshiped the goat, okay? But when we start worshiping ourselves, we've taken it to a whole new level. 
And what does that look like? What does it look like to make myself an idol? Well, things like this are said. I don't understand that. That doesn't make sense to me, so it can't be true. Like we become the, the standard of understanding and truth. We become the plumb line of what is reliable. And, and it, Paul says it pretty easy. Listen, you can think that all you want, but in doing that, you've actually become foolish. Um, the next passage here, next section, we'll try to go through these ones until the end of the chapter, and then we'll open it up for any kind of questions or comments, because the rest of the passage really deals with similar ideas, and so we'll kind of keep walking through it. Uh, verses 24 through 27. If I can get a volunteer to read those couple of verses, 24 to 27. Kelsey, great, thank you. Okay, so Paul's kind of getting pretty, like, in your face now. He's kind of just really getting after it and kind of being honest with them. Um, when you read this here, there's some that take this passage a couple different ways. Uh, my personal uh, interpretation of this and what I believe I see here and what I believe I see in other uh, writings is God did not make them sin, okay? Uh, when it says there in verse 24, God also gave them up to God didn't say, okay, you know what? Fine, here, I'm going to make you go do these things. What God is merely doing is he's allowing them to choose sin, and then God allows that by saying, hey, go. You want to go do it? Go do it. And that's what I said this morning. We have a hard time with this sometimes. Why doesn't God intervene? Why doesn't God do this? Because God is God, and he knows these hearts are hard to me. They're turning away from me. So if you want to go do that, go ahead. I'm not going to force you to worship me. Now, we know what will come one day. I think it was the passage maybe Greg read this morning. What will come one day? Every knee will and every tongue will. Now, they won't be confessing and worship as a follower of Christ. Why are they confessing these truths? Because they see God as the judge and the authority that he is. And they're merely acknowledging who God is. That doesn't mean they're all going to come to salvation in Christ or come to know Christ as Savior. It's saying, no, we're all going to be made very aware of who God really is. At this point, what is God saying? Go ahead. You want to sin that way? Go ahead. He's just allowing them to have what they wanted. Warren Worsby said it this way, and I love this. From idolatry, idolatry to immorality is just one short step. I think that's so powerful. From idolatry to immorality is just one short step. Do you notice the process here? They, they, they weren't acknowledging God for who he says he is. They started worshiping what they saw. They started worshiping themselves. And then the next step is they start fulfilling sinful lusts. Okay, verse 28, we're going to read that. And that kind of ties in with 24 to 27. So we'll talk a little more about this. But verse 28, um, I'll just go ahead and read this one. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenience. Okay? Um, this again, 
we have to see it as God is merely allowing them to make the choice they wanted to make, and he gave them over to it. Uh, The word here, reprobate, we see that in the passage. It means a mind void of judgment or that cannot form right judgments. So what God is saying is he gave them over to that, meaning they were going down that road. He merely says, okay, fine, go ahead. And as they're going down this road, they continue to show and to prove with their actions that they have a mind void of judgment or that cannot form right judgments, okay? Now, one of the biggest questions about this, because up to this point, we're reading this and we're like, okay, all of this is making sense, right? Because we live in a fallen world. Nobody in this room is like, I've never seen human beings act in such a way. We've all seen things like this to some degree. We get to this point, and now there's a question that's propped up throughout church history and even in some churches. And I know there's people on both sides of the fence on this. There's debate that has gone back and forth on this. So I'll tell you what I have found in my studies over the years, what I believe is an appropriate and fair interpretation of this, and what does justice to the context. Uh, Some have wondered if a Christian can be considered reprobate. If a Christian can be considered reprobate, meaning someone that God would just, quote-unquote, give over to these affections and let them go just live in this way and have a mind, quote, void of judgment. Um, To answer the question directly, can a Christian be reprobate in this sense? What we see in the text, I believe the answer is no. I believe the answer is no, and here's why. Uh, A true convert may choose sin for a season, and God will allow us to make that choice. However, the context implies a greater degree of sin, and I would suggest Paul's greater context is not speaking to Christians who are struggling. What's Paul's point in all this? What's he building a case for? What's Paul's point in even going down this road of talking about the Gentiles? We talked about this a few minutes ago. What's he trying to build up to? Okay, so he's speaking to this group of Gentiles, and he's saying, you all need Christ, and here's why you need Christ. Nowhere in the context of this point have we gotten the impression that he's speaking to Christians. It sure seems like in the context he's speaking to non-believers. He's going to build a case in chapter 2 to the Jews, chapter 3 to the whole world, and then he's going to get to the part about talking about that we can receive Christ or have forgiveness of our sin. Again, remember, Paul's point is to establish the Gentiles' need for Christ. These descriptions would be true of someone outside of Christ, or you could say true of our past selves before Christ. Um, When you look at it here, uh, he's going to go on and list in verses 29 through 31. um, He's going to list some sins. And the sins he lists are speaking about those that are reprobate. Okay, so he's going to go back up and talk about these individuals. He's explaining the sin that is being talked about through these Gentiles. One of the descriptions is haters of God. Haters of God. And my question would be this. Again, can a true convert, not, I'm not talking about somebody that's going through a rough time, but can a true follower of Christ be labeled literally a hater of God? First John seems to suggest no. First John seems to suggest that if you're in Christ, you will not curse God to that degree. Now, what do we hear people say? 
As a Christian, I might struggle and question his goodness or whatever, but I, I, a true believer from the scriptures we've read and what we've known about other, other passages of scripture, I don't believe a true believer can be considered a hater of God. Okay? So again, can a believer sin? Absolutely. Will God allow a believer to sin? Sure. What does that sin bring to the believer's life, though? Okay, chastisement. Hebrews tells us that. Conviction, right? I truly believe all true believers who commit sin have a desire to repent. They may quench the spirit for a time, but I believe a true believer will have a desire to repent. Maybe not initially, but I believe it will come, is what we see in Scripture. Um, So again, that's why I would say to a degree, and I was talking to a pastor friend of mine about this idea a few months ago, and I sent him the text just to see what he would say. I said, hey, can a Christian be reprobate? And his first text back was, what do you mean by reprobate? And he's smart. He knows like Greek, Hebrew, all this stuff. And I was like, oh, he's on to me. He's got it figured out, okay? So I just kind of explained what I meant. And I said, well, what I mean is what Paul talks about in Romans 1. And he said, no, I don't believe so. And then he said right after that, he said, however, I do believe God allows us to sin but with a believer comes chastisement. And I was like, okay, you're good. I'm just testing you. I knew the answer. I was just wondering what you would say. Um, but no, I, I, think it's a, it's a, I think it's a fair judgment and, and looking at the context. That's what we've got to remember, the context of the passage. Um, and people will read that and go, okay, yeah, there are Christians that sin and God will allow to sin and all of that. Uh, that aspect of it is true, but I believe it's not what Paul's referring to. I believe Paul's speaking to a greater need for the Gentile world to know Christ, Okay. So let's read a couple more verses, give you some time to ask questions and comments. Um, so they were filled with unrighteousness, which Paul gives us examples of that unrighteousness. So verses 29 through 31, need one more person to volunteer. 29 through 31, one more reader. Who wants to do it? Mike, awesome, thank you. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Just, we're going to save 32 for just a second. So when you read that list, let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen these things in our world today? Do these sins still fit? You know one that jumps out to me in that list? There's a couple. But you know the one that really jumps out to me? Inventors of evil things. It's amazing to me how we can take what God has given us in this world and use it and create the most wicked things. I mean, think about it this way. Did God give us the ability to have a a brain that can think and have intellect and discover and all those things? Yes, that's all of God. Uh, Any medical advancements that a human being put this and this together and went, oh, wow, that's all praise to God because he gave us the brain, okay? But that same brain can invent some very wicked things as well. Think about technology. Technology is a great blessing, isn't it? I mean, think about it. You can communicate the gospel truth to millions of people with this phone, this little tiny thing right here, okay? I'm not going to ask Mike Haynes to break it down, but I heard somebody tell me one time that the memory that's on this phone would have had to take like room after room after room of computers to do what this little phone can do at one time. And when you think about that, I can make a couple little things, 
boom, send a message around the world. People in China and, and all over the place will read what I wrote. That's an amazing blessing as a Christian. When you think about what Paul had to go through to just preach the gospel to the known world at his time. But also, the same mind that created this technology, which gives us great blessings and encouragements, that is also the mind that created things like pornography. And that now people can just access it on their phones. It's amazing to me that when, when Paul says this, he's saying, listen, do you not understand the depth of the depravity? Do you not understand how deep this goes? This is not surface stuff. This is not just stop doing this one thing. Our need for Christ is deep. It's deep. And I've always felt as though when I start thinking I'm not that bad, or I start downplaying the gospel, I read passages like this and I realize, God, how could you love me? Because by the way, before Christ, you're on that list. Before Christ, you're these people. And so that's the beauty of the gospel that we see here. Now again, this is not an exhaustive or all the sins we could commit, okay? I mean, that list could go on and on and on. Uh, he is explaining the various degrees and ways we naturally express our unrighteousness. Let me ask you a question. When you read that, doesn't it make you feel good inside? What you're capable of? It doesn't me. When you read these things, just some of these things we wouldn't even think of as bad, right? This idea of this proud and debaters. No, that's okay. It's just your personality. But if it's all about selfishness, then it's sin. How about the fact that it says disobedient to parents? Now, this is where some of you parents are like, yeah, I tell my kids all the time, Romans 1, you want to be on that list? Keep being disobedient, okay? I don't really tell my kids that. It was funny, though, Josiah memorized uh, the verse in Ephesians, you know, like, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. And as he was memorizing it in the van, Sandra was like, yeah, that's right, you better memorize that verse. Like, it's truth, okay? And as soon as, I think it was one of the parents said that their son memorized it, as soon as they read it, they were like, oh, mom, nice. I see what you're doing here, okay? Figuring you out, mom, okay? When you see this on here, though, it's not just for kids, by the way, right? Wow, somebody just said goodbye. I guess we got to go. Is that on, a, I'm probably on a timer or something? Okay. It says goodbye. We ain't leaving yet, so don't get excited, okay? Yeah, it's going to start running through that. Can you just stop that, Greg? Maybe blank that or something? There you go. When you think about that, this goes through our adult life as well, doesn't it? Should we still honor our parents as adults? We should still respect our parents as adults. Now listen, I know it's a different dynamic, a different relationship, because you're out of the home, you're your own family, you're your own adult now. But I just want to encourage you, that doesn't stop just because we become adults. Anyway, so let's move into the last verse, and then we'll get out of here because the screen's yelling at us. Okay. Verse 32. Verse 32. Let's look at what it says there. Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. That's one of those verses that when you read it, you're just thinking, man, how far has this culture, this society gone? And I, it's just a powerful truth there that, that those that do it, they're under the judgment of God. And what is the judgment of God? What's the judgment of God? Death. What kind of death? Okay, it's a physical death, right? Is physical death a result of sin? Yes, okay. But spiritual death, meaning that separation from God. What does Romans tell us later on? Right? For the wages of sin is death. That's not, again, it's not just physical death. That's this idea of separation. And so when Paul is saying this, he's saying, listen, 
you're all worthy of this. You can't say, well, I'm not as bad as them. Maybe I'm disobedient to my parents, but I've never murdered anybody. Uh Uh-uh. Paul made a case. It's you're all worthy of death. Then he goes on to say this. Not only do the same, so those that are under the judgment, not just those that do them, but what does he say? But those that take pleasure in them that do them. So you're not just sinning. You're actually taking pleasure in watching other people sin. Like you're getting enjoyment out of that. And again, this is our world today. This is our world today. Like, when you look around us, there are people all over the place that are not only sinning, but encouraging sin. Uh, Sandra and I, I mentioned this before, we were in Vegas. Now I'm telling you, you want to talk about a place that sins and encourages you to sin, it's crazy. We were on the strip on a Monday night, like 11 o'clock at night, and there were families with strollers. I was like, there ain't no way. I mean, it was kind of cool to go and just kind of see it all. Like, just, and it's like, it's, I mean, it's overwhelming, right? All the lights and stuff. But I realized something. Every casino, which I did go in one, every casino, it's not, it's it's like the same thing, different carpet, but it's all the same games, basically, right? Looks cool on the outside. You know, different, you know, themes and all this. We got into a couple of them, and I was like, this is the exact same, there's nothing different about this one. Now, we didn't do the shows. That would be kind of cool, see the shows and stuff, I'm sure. But when you think about that, like, I remember thinking in Vegas, and I asked somebody, because we went to the church there and, and while we were visiting, doing this youth camp. And I said, what's so crazy about Vegas? Like, why is Vegas so crazy? And they said, you know what's crazy is, everywhere in the world, people sin. Right? He even said to me, he said, people sin here just like they do back in wherever you're from in Michigan. He said, here's the difference. Here, it's the only reason you come here. Like, people actually come here to sin. And then they think, it's fine, because I'm in Vegas. So this church, I mean, I'm telling you, some of the things this church told me they, had, they went through as a church, the people that came into their church, it was just insane. But it's amazing to me when you see this in Romans, and we think, this is our world today. So that should encourage us with something. The same need our world needed over uh, roughly 2,000 years ago is the same need we need today. It's not change the behavior, change the culture, more laws, more rules. It's Jesus. It's the interjection of Jesus Christ into our culture. That's what's going to bring lasting change. Now, not for everyone, but for those that choose to receive it. And so to me, that's one of the most powerful statements Paul makes in this list. Not just those that sin, but those that have pleasure in those that do them. All right, that's chapter one. So we are moving, man. We're doing really good. If you were in our Luke study, you know that's impressive to get through that many verses in one night. So, and we reviewed and made copies. So it was great. We were just flying, okay? All right. Uh, Since the kids go technically to 7.30, we're not going to go to 7.30 necessarily in here, but we don't have to quite rush as much. So I would like to ask if anyone has a comment, question, thought, something that jumped out to you in the text, something you want to share from Romans chapter 1, anything like that at all before we dismiss you guys. What's that? I hope so. Uh, Let me say that too. I'm glad you said that because I put these notes together. I do some studying and all that kind of stuff and kind of build an outline. If there's something that I don't address in a chapter, maybe to me it's a minor point, so I kind of just, you know, glaze over it and just kind of go by it. Please stop me. Hey, wait a minute. And, and, you know, in verse 12, it's not in this chapter, but verse 12, it said this. You kind of said that. What, what, tell me more about that. 
okay? Because I may not hit on every single thing that you want to know about in the passage or in the chapter. So um, also, I warn you guys this way too, with Luke, I'll do it again. Um, Google, again, <laughs> is a great resource, but anybody can put something on Google, okay? Um, and so just because an article is on Google about something in Romans doesn't necessarily mean it's reliable, okay? So if you start studying the book of Romans and you're looking at some things, um, you're going to find contradictory opinions, of course. And so just maybe look into who wrote the article, uh, what their background is, um, what their viewpoint might be. Um, some people will write articles just merely to uh, kind of come against a certain opinion. And they're, they're kind of of a different mindset all along. And so maybe they're just using it as ammunition. So just be careful there. Always research who's writing what you're reading. Um, it's great to read different opinions. I love reading books by people that disagree with me. Uh, they can be wrong. It's fine. Um, but when I read those things, um, what I like to, I'm kidding, of course. What I like to do is find out more about the author. I think so many Christians nowadays, not necessarily us in this room, but Christians in our church culture today, if it's popular on the New York Times bestseller and said to be Christian, man, we eat it up. We buy it like in droves, okay? Theologically sound, no. Um, biblically sound, no. But man, it's got a cool cover, a cool title, and it's selling a bunch of books. It must be good, okay? So just be careful there. Just because something is popular and says Christian on it or says it's by a Christian author, doesn't necessarily mean everything in the book is sound, okay? So we always want to do our own homework. And the disagreement might be minor. Maybe it's a little thing. But I find it's interesting. Usually authors have bigger plans, bigger. They write one book to set up this book to set up this book, okay? So usually it's not innocent just at the surface is what I'm saying. So uh, anyway, that's enough of that nonsense. Anyone else have any questions, comments, thoughts, snide remarks? Greg, put your hand down. Okay, Mike, go ahead. Yes. That's a great point. Yeah. Uh, mercy in a lot of cultures was seen as a weakness. Absolutely. Um, there was a lot that was said to be, or to be said for just get what you can get. And if they're too weak, oh well, you know. I mean, even, I've said this before too, even the idea of natural selection or things like that, um, that it's the survival of the fittest, you know. And I've always said if evolution is true, when you see an elderly person being taken advantage of, it should not bother you. Um, They've outlived their usefulness. If, if the natural selection has chosen them and the stronger of the species decides to wipe them out, hey, that's just how it goes, okay? We just got to deal with it. But if there's something in you that is bothered by people being taken advantage of or hurt or crimes done against them, that speaks to something in you that is more than just some evolutionary process. It shows that God created you. Again, within us, there's evidence of that. And that's why we display mercy through Christ. It's not always easy but it's possible. Absolutely. Yeah, Autumn. Yes. Sure. 
Sure, sure. Yeah. It's always great how that works, isn't it? You can't do that, but I can do that all I want. Yeah, yeah. I see. That's a great question. So first and foremost, um, what does it mean to respect our parents? Let's just kind of open it up real quick. What would you guys say to Autumn is how can she respect a parent that uh, doesn't, does he not know Christ? Correct? Okay. Does not know Christ, has a very contradictory opinion to scripture, but still her parents. So how could she respect him and yet still stand by what she knows to be true in the word of God? What do you guys think? Yeah, go ahead, Ann. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. You touched on a couple of things. Yeah, I'll come back to Kelsey in just a second. You, yeah, you touched on a couple of things there that I think is huge. So, like, you can still acknowledge whatever they did was wrong was wrong. You can still acknowledge that it hurt, that they hurt you or whatever hurt. Um, as a Christian, you show a testimony before them, right? You're always at that church. Well, okay, but that's a testimony of Christ. So I think honoring them and respecting them deals with, I'm going to keep living for Christ, I can acknowledge that these things weren't right. I can disagree with you, but I'm going to share that disagreement in a way that is respectful of you. I'm not going to get into this mudslinging and name-calling and, you know, all those kind of things. Um, and I'm going to pray for you that you'll come to know Christ and live in a way that honors Christ before you as is healthy to do so. Absolutely. Kelsey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, again, where, you know, we have to learn we can still be respectful and we can still honor our parents. It doesn't mean, honoring them does not mean we always agree with them, right? I even, when I was in youth ministry, we went through our church split in 2007. We had, we lost, I think, 17 or 18 of our students in that split um, of about 35 kids and almost 40. And so most of them were older, juniors, seniors. And I had a junior that came to me and said, if I can't go here, I'm not going anywhere. My parents are being idiots. I don't agree with them. And just went down the right line. 
And one thing I told this girl that I still believe is true today is you have to honor them and respect them. You're living in their home. If they say this is the church you're going to, that's the church you go to. When you become an adult, you can make your own choice, but you're going to honor them this way. And I said, you don't have to agree with them to honor them. You can share with them, I don't agree with this. You do it in a respectful way, but you still submit to their authority over you. Now, as an adult, that dynamic changes. Again, um, we still respect them, but now we are an adult and we can make our choices as we feel led. And so I think that dynamic continually grows and changes. But I, I love what Kelsey said and what the speaker at the retreat said, apparently, that you can either choose to be bitter or better. I like that. It's good. Any other questions or comments from Romans? Anything else about that? Awesome. Good questions, guys. Very good. All right, well, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll be dismissed. You guys are welcome to hang out. We've got about uh, a little less than 15 minutes before they're dismissed down there. So you're welcome to fellowship, welcome to hang out, uh, spend some time getting to know each other, and uh, talking about that good game today. Uh, didn't quite go like we wanted it to, but still a good game. So we're going to just dwell on the good things, okay? We're going to dwell on the good things. So, but let's go ahead and pray, and we'll let you guys uh, be dismissed or spend some time together. Father, uh, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for your love. And we thank you that before Christ, uh, we were truly unlovable, but yet you loved us. That when we were in these sins, and not only committing these sins, but taking pleasure in others committing these sins, uh, Lord, I thank you that you reached out to us, that you extended your love and grace to us, and that you pursued us. That when we were in these sins, we were not interested in pursuing you. We were not interested in coming after you. But you came to us, and you pursued us, and you engaged us, and you offered to us a way of salvation. Father, I pray that you'd help us to have uh, the appropriate mindset when we're dealing with people in our world and our culture, that we would not see them as the enemy. That when people sin in these ways, Lord, that we can understand it's wrong and there's consequences. But help us to be Christ-like in understanding that they're just doing all they know to do. Uh, They're just displaying the sin that's in them by sinning outwardly. And I pray that we would be passionate, as the Apostle Paul was, to feel an obligation to go to them, to share with them their need for a Savior. And instead of tearing them down and attacking them and insulting them, I pray that we would go in a Christ-like way with truth. Yes, we speak truth, but we speak truth in love. I pray that as we learned in our study uh, with Ravi Zacharias, that truth and love cannot be disconnected from one another. Uh, We need both. And so I pray that you would be glorified as we go through this week. Thank you, Father, for these that are here. I pray you just encourage them and bless them in a mighty way. We love you, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.